0: You're listening to a message from The Church at Rutledge. For more information about TCAR, please visit thechurchatrutledge.org. Good morning again. Only so many days to Christmas. What is it? How many? Like 17? Yeah. Yeah. That that frightens some people, excites some people, so it depends on where you're at in your shopping lists and all that stuff, and arranging your schedule with families and all that stuff, travel arrangements, however that may go for you, breaking out the air mattresses and making sure they don't have holes in them for people that's coming to stay, right? So all those things that go on, but um, as far as Christmas goes, most of us understand that uh, Christmas is when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, and then 30 years later or so, he lays down the carpenter tools and hanging out with mom and dad and takes off on his earthly ministry and ultimately ends up going through the events of what we call Holy Week and going to the cross. And um, I, I, one one of the, the basis for what I'm going to talk about today came off of a sermon series I did about Holy Week uh, several years ago, Love one of my favorite things we ever did, and um, So I I like talking about those things of, you know, of course, because it's it's the gospel, it's what Jesus came to do for us, to die for us, that we could be forgiven and have new life that will, and we'll see that, how that plays out even in today's uh, account as we're in the book of Mark and we're in chapter 11, we're going to talk about the triumphal entry today as he is headed to Jerusalem. If you've been here and going through the book of Mark with us, if not, this will totally make sense to you anyway, but. It's why Jesus came at Christmas. Um, it's why He came to Earth. Why He was incarnate, God incarnate, born in human form, so that He could die for us and go and do what we're li- talking about today—to bring glory to God, to bring salvation to us, which ultimately is the way He brings sal- uh, glory to Himself. But um, so after three years of going about healing people and um, teaching the disciples, the time comes for him to go to Jerusalem and fulfill his ultimate purpose in leaving heaven in the first place and come to be with us. Um, Many times throughout, as we've seen even in the Gospel of Mark as we've gone through this book, you've seen Jesus say to people, don't say anything, it's not yet time, it's not yet time, it's not yet time. He would say that many, many times and don't tell anybody about that miracle, it's not time, you know, that kind of thing. Let's let's leave because it's not time. <clears throat> so now Jesus knows it's time. And he sets out for Jerusalem where it will all take place and thus Holy Week begins and he enters Jerusalem. And we're going to be, like I said, looking at Mark 11 uh, and many other scriptures. I know I freaked out Emmanuel this morning when he walked in and saw the list of scriptures to put in. There's like 13. Okay. And so don't freak out though. I'm going to, it's, you often hear me say, this is one of those head down, going to just plow through this uh, as fast as we can uh, so we can get all this in. But J- Jesus as beginning of Mark 11, what we see is him going in. He's told these couple guys to go in and commandeer a, a cult donkey, a baby donkey, and is riding into town through the eastern gate toward the temple. Um, just a side note to understand this because of how he's entering and what he came to earth to do and what scripture teaches about Jesus and his demeanor, Jesus lowered himself to come to earth, being obedient to the Father to serve mankind, to serve creation. And that that is a huge implication. Not that he was bound by it as far as um, had no power over it, but but he willingly went to the cross, came and, and gave himself as a servant, for us, and so Philippians, my favorite passage in all of Scripture. If you know me it's Philippians two. Um, I love one through eleven fourteen is a good one. Just it gets into do everything without grumbling and complaining. All of it's very convicting to me. This is why maybe it's my favorite. But there's it's it's like one of the deepest, richest passages. It includes even the incarnation and why Jesus came and all these things about what that means for us. And you know how application driven I am. So. Looking at Philippians 2, 6-11, it tells us about Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Okay? He's fully God, fully man, but didn't consider something to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. Then being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as man. See, it's saying he's totally God, but he came in the form of man. Fully God, fully man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see this, This he, he did this as part of, a, of God's plan to bring glory to himself, to save us for himself, but had to lower himself to come here and do that. I mean, you look at, it, at his time on the earth and his ministry, when it began, as we've read through this, you're talking about borrowed boats, borrowed homes, borrowed an upper room for the Passover, right, to celebrate Passover, the Last Supper, borrows a donkey, and he'll borrow a tomb to be buried in. Literally, he just needs it for the weekend, right? And, And he goes on and decides to use us for his glory. I mean, broken, messed up vessels that we are, and Jesus, God the Father, the, the the Trinity decides, hey, once you once you die on the cross and 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 you ascend back to heaven, let's use them to do my work on the earth for for until you go back. And so so here he uses us in the midst of that as well as his ambassadors during this time period, as the church, uh, as his bride. And so broken and weak things he can use, which I'm thankful for. And so if you're thinking, I, you know, I'm broken, I'm weak, I can't. I mean, you're exactly the candidate Jesus is looking for. And so in those days, kings would ride donkeys in times of peace. Okay? But during times of war, they would ride a stallion, a steed, a war horse in times of battle. And Jesus is coming in here as we see him on a on a donkey offering peace, right? He's the prince of peace. But in contrast, when you get to Revelation chapter 19, as we see him coming back again, not riding on a donkey, but riding on a white horse, and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You didn't know Jesus had a tattoo, did you? Right? That scares some people. I'm like, No, it's a sash. Okay. Don't know, it doesn't say. It just says written on his thighs, and we don't know. Okay, I'm not promoting tattoos. I need to clear that up in case my wife's in here, and my parents. Okay, I don't have one. Okay, none hidden anywhere. Not gonna, not for me. But just saying. Okay, and so and thus seen in the Philippians scripture I was just read to you a minute ago in chapter two, it goes on to say in contrast, you know, it says he lowered himself. He he did all, you know, he thinking about comes on a donkey, offering peace, but then Revelation 19, he comes back on a horse. So in Philippians 2, it's the same contrast. You see him lowering himself, becoming a man to death on a cross, but then immediately it says in verse 9, for this reason also, like it's, it's it's together, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess, if those are in heaven on earth and in the earth under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father so so the the cult donkey Jesus um, on this cult donkey Jesus on the way in as he they go get it and they come back love how he he will talk about this in a minute how he God ta- takes care of every detail it's like even when he sends a man he's like hey if somebody questions you about stealing this donkey um just say the Lord has need of it, okay? I don't suggest you use that with local law enforcement, okay? Because not just jail, you might go for mental evaluation, okay? So, but this is what he tells them to do. God takes care of it, and it's like, hey, um, if somebody asks you just say the Lord has need of it, and that happens. Like, God takes care of that. I don't know how he takes care of that. You know, if the dudes that are standing there that see it and, and question it, if they have a dream, you know, it's just one of those things of, he spoke to them ahead of time. Hey, if somebody comes up to steal this donkey and they say, the Lord has need of it, just let him go. But that's what happens, okay? And so on the way back in, Jesus on this donkey pulls over, curses a fig tree, even though it wasn't the season for the tree to produce figs anyway, okay? But he curses it, not cusses it, he curses it, okay? He rides on into town and goes to the temple, creates a big scene, you know, turning over the tables and running out the, the people in the temple because saying some bold words he says to him. And he, go, he goes back out um, and goes back by the fig tree to see it's withered to the root, says something about hurling a mountain into the sea and concludes with some teaching to the disciples about the relationship with God, in particular about asking God for things and receiving things from God, okay? Okay. Now, most of the time, you hear all these different stories, the turnover over the tables, the fig tree, and all these things, as though they're distant, like just isolated stories. But as you look closer, I think they may all be one coherent episode relaying the same message. And I think it goes together, and the message that we will see is about how God is changing the way he relates to us from Old Covenant to New Covenant, from the old system to the temple being us instead of we go to the temple. And so continuing to move toward us and seeking out those far from him and taking down all the barriers between us and him is what I believe this is about. And the real applicable part of the, all this um, is in his teaching to the disciples about how much God wants to relate to them and commune with them and this great relationship of asking and receiving from God and it's not just about the disciples but the same invitation is given to us. And it's about asking and receiving like never before even asking for forgiveness of sin and receiving that forgiveness a relationship like never before with the creator of the universe and he comes here on a donkey offering peace. See, asking for anything, especially forgiveness of sin for them before, was always directed toward the temple. Okay? They had, there was basically three types of law. You had moral law, 10 commandment type stuff, right? Ceremonial law, everyday, um, keep clean, stay focused on God kind of stuff. And sacrificial law, how to get forgiveness because you can't do the other stuff right all the time. Okay? Side note, Kind of thing. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to get rid of the rid of the law. And there's different ends of the spectrum that people and in their understanding of that and what that means. And it's 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 and so it's okay. But when I look at this and and you under, and when I look at what this means, especially even in this story and how it implicates this, um, you've heard that before, right? He came to fulfill the law, not to get rid of it. Right, God is holy and righteous and his moral law always stands. Right? So you have to understand that part. And, and it was it's, it's the same today as it was yesterday. Jesus would go deeper into the heart of the issue than, than maybe there was in the Old Testament of you've heard it said do not commit murder. But I say if you've hated someone in your heart you've committed murder. So it gets more to the inside, which you know, in parallel, we go from outside forgiveness in the temple to we are the temple and the Holy Spirit's inside. So you can see the correlation between the two, right? So, so in fulfilling the law, it, all these, all of those things—moral law, ceremonial law, sacrificial law—all those things are fulfilled in Jesus. It's all, it's all now through Jesus, not through this system of. He fulfills it, but it doesn't mean that you don't still need forgiveness of sin. It doesn't mean you still don't need to keep clean or obey his moral law or do this, but it's now through Jesus, not through all these acts of righteousness that you do. It's through the act of righteousness that Jesus did, okay? And so moral law is not kept by Jesus, uh, is, moral law is not kept, is now kept by Jesus in us, Right? Forgiveness is now through Jesus because of what He did for us. All those ceremonies and what they were for is 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 now through Jesus. Okay, so that's what all that means. And and so what do we learn about this through Jesus and His donkey riding, big cursing, table turning, mountain throwing episode on, called Palm Sunday? Okay. Well, to start with, Jesus just riding in on this foal of a donkey, a colt fulfills a 500-year-old prophecy. One of over 300 prophecies he fulfilled, okay? Which, again, is one of those things you look at and go, impossible. I don't care what the History Channel or anybody makes up on those specials you'll see throughout Christmas about how Jesus was just some guy that, that made some things happen on his own, and he was just a man that was very creative and did some cool tricks, okay? There's no way... Thousands of years of writings and he fulfills three, like, scientists have looked at it and gone, the probability of him being able to do this, even if he wanted to, it's impossible. You would win the lottery, like, 15 times over, well before Jesus could ever have done this, right? And so... There's one for this one about the, the donkey, about the cult, is from Zechariah, which tells us that a savior king would enter the city this exact way. In Zechariah 9, nine, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Very specific, right? By Jesus riding into... Jerusalem on this cult, everybody knew who Jesus was claiming to be. Okay, They're like, okay, this is what we've been taught all our lives. Jerusalem is waiting on this new leader. It has been announced for hundreds of years. They have waited for this, and Jesus is driving in on the Messiah's cult, parking in the Messiah's parking space, and taking the the Messiah's office. Okay? There's, There's a There's no confusion about what he's saying as he does this. There's also a prophecy in the Old Testament that says the Messiah will enter through the east gate of Jerusalem, okay? Exactly as Jesus is doing right here, okay? Ezekiel 44 says, then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces the east, and it was shut. You need to listen to this, okay? The Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened. And no one shall enter by it, for the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. And as for the prince, he shall sit in it as prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of the gate and shall not go out by the same way. Okay? And this you may find interesting as well. Okay? I don't know. Were you able to get that picture? Oh, we got a thumbs up. That's cool. Okay? So, this is very interesting. Okay, check out this picture. Okay, a little bit fuzzy, but this was I, this was a last minute thing where I was like, it would be cool to have a picture. Okay, that's the Eastern Gate in Jerusalem. Okay, I don't know if you can tell, but those two, the gates, the arches inside of that, it's all blocked up. It's been masoned in, right? And if you could see it out here in front, is a bunch of grave sites. Okay, I mean, there's people all buried in there and tombs and stuff. That's just um, out in front of this, okay? What did it say in Ezekiel 44? It'll be shut. I mean, this is modern picture. We're not talking about this is hundreds of years old or something, right? So it's interesting, okay, referred to as the golden gate going into the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's not really a gate anymore, okay? It's the very To this very day, that gate stays shut. Some claim Suleiman the magnific- Magnificent of the Ottoman Empire did this. Other claim it has been shut since as early as the 12th century or before. Regardless, it's sealed up. I mean, how, how difficult, how easy do you think it would be to open this gate back up with all those graves in front of it? I like, guess like you'd have to relocate all that. Like you think anybody's going to let you just yeah, let's just bulldoze all that and dig all them people up? You, you, know, you know what that kind of thing means in their culture, regardless if it's Jewish or Muslim or whatever culture, whoever's buried there, you can imagine what it would take to move it. Okay, It's just not going to happen. I, and I just think it's interesting when you look at the, what Scripture says, that it looks like that today, right? So as Jesus does this, people get very excited about what he's claiming what they've heard about him, and he comes exactly as prophesied. And so in Mark 11, we're going to look at 8 through 10 first, we see the response of the people of him coming in the way he came in, right? So Mark 11, 8 through 10, it says, And many spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields, palm branches, okay? so traditional way to inaugurate a new king. This is the way they would do it. They would, they would respond this way, acknowledging him as that new king. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting Hosanna, which literally means save us because he's this Messiah that's come to save them. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Really crazy part of this right here. When they say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're quoting Psalm 118, okay? A psalm of the Jews that was about the coming Messiah okay it's the same psalm ironically that says these words okay grasp the implications here psalm 118:22 okay says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone okay they're quoting as he enters this psalm which later would say and that very one they're praising they're going to reject and that, that, like, you just want to go? Did y'all not read the rest of that? Right? This is the same crowd that's singing his praises will soon turn on him and reject him, and he and he will do away with the current temple to become the cornerstone of the new temple. Jesus is our cornerstone; us as the temple. Okay. I'm going to diverge a little bit. Now, in Luke, in the Luke account of this story, right here, where he quotes Psalm 118, Luke tells us something else that's interesting in that account in the gospel. Not some contradictory, just more information, okay? When Jesus is on the donkey and he's coming down into it, from the Mount of Olives into the city, he looks over the city and it says he starts to weep over the city of Jerusalem. He holds Jerusalem accountable for having known what this particular day is was to be, okay? Now, let me just back up and say the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem was a Sunday, okay? In the Jewish calendar, it was the 10th day of the month, the month of Nisan. It's what's called, not a truck or a car, right? Okay, that's it's just called Nisan. The 10th day of Nisan was the day in the Jew, Jewish calendars. In which, in their homes, in Jewish communities, in Jewish homes, they selected a lamb from their flock for their own personal sacrifice. You hear? You getting this? Isn't this crazy? Okay. And and once it would be killed, they would eat eat that lamb with the family. Okay. So they would present it to the family. Okay. After it was sacrificed, the lamb was taken and it was presented to the family that day. Okay. So on the 10th of Nisan, on the day the Lamb is presented in all these families, right, for this sacrifice, the Lamb of God is presented to the nation of Israel coming into Jerusalem to be their sacrifice. And Jesus, according to Luke chapter 19, Jesus said, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Interesting, right? I don't have time to fully go off on this track, okay, but just so you get this, maybe it's something you'll study. For the days you will come for the days will come upon you when the your enemies will throw up a barricade against you, and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground, and your children with you within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Because, why? You did not recognize the time of your visitation. Okay? Isn't it interesting that Jesus said those words holding the nation of Israel, the Jews, accountable to know that day and what it was supposed to mean. that The time of their visitation. Now, what what was that? Okay. what day was it? How were they supposed to know? Okay, you go back to Daniel nine for the answer. Okay, you start getting you any preacher that starts going Revelation, you know, Daniel nine, that makes everybody nervous, right? It does most people if you know all that stuff? Okay, but listen, this is pretty simple as far as I understand it. Go back to Daniel nine for the answer related to what Luke says in there. And you go back, and when the angel said to Daniel, this is what he said, Daniel, 70 weeks have been decreed for you, for your people and your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah. Okay, there's a decree issued. You're, you're supposed. To, he's saying you guys are supposed to know from this decree until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. He's saying you you should know this is going to happen. This visitation is going to happen from the time of this decree. Here's the number of days it will be until that happens, okay? From the time that the, a commandment is given to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, is, and if you figure this out, I'm not smart enough to, I just read some guys that figured it out, okay, it's 483 years, okay? You can get the calculations. There's a book called The Coming Prince, written by Sir Robert Anderson, he was head of Scotland Yard years ago, he did all these computations, figure this out, that was one of the books that referenced this, Anderson figured that according to the calendar, and it's not like our 365 and a third calendar, it's the 365 calendar, okay, which is, it's just too complicated to get into all that, but Anderson figured you could get to the exact day count the exact day from the commandment the edict to restore and build the city of Jerusalem which was given on March 14th 444 445 BC okay and the, and, and if you went that number the the number of days you would be at April 6 32 AD or the 10th of Nisan a Sunday when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, for the first time and only time, presented himself to the nation publicly as their Messiah to the public adulation of the crowd, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Isn't that crazy? Now you tell me Jesus, if he were not God, just happened to get that right. Okay? And and Jesus had to stop, according to Luke, And say, you should have known this day. You should have known the time of your visitation, is what Luke is saying. You should have known. You were told. And because you didn't recognize it, because you were blinded to it, and you didn't study that prophetic scripture and take literally what I said, 70 A.D. is coming right around the corner, and not one stone of the temple is going to be left. It's all going to be torn down because you didn't know the time of your visitation. Isn't that amazing? Okay? All of that is just for me to ask you this question, okay? How exact is God? How exact? Okay? And you're like, yeah, he's exact, okay? And we'll flip this on you, okay? So why is it that we get so worried about so many little things? We look up to heaven often and go, God, you're just just—you're too late, right? You're blowing this. Your timing's off, right? How come you're not watching or you're not paying attention? God, are you asleep, right? How come you're not listening? How come you're not acting? How come you're not paying attention to these little details in my life, right? If God can pull off what I just described, it's chunk change for what we got going on, right? He can move heaven and earth and and history and weave it together for Jesus to come on the exact day. I mean, really. He can take care of whatever stuff you got going on. He's exact. He's exact. He's not missing it. Okay? So just all that to say that. So now there's this fig tree outside the city in Mark 11. Looking at verse 13 and 14, we see Jesus pulls the side and curses the tree. And and though Jesus is our, more than a prophet, if you read Hebrews, it's great to, he, he's our great high priest. He's the greater prophet. He's, he's the greater uh, redeemer. He's the greater, all these things, he's greater, okay? So we, we, he's greater than. But you'd often see Jesus use the same, being the greater prophet. He you, you see how he uses the same type of teaching that the prophets would in the Old Testament. They would use symbolic actions to relay their messages. Okay. So Jeremiah stood outside the city and broke a clay pot as a visual as what uh, God was going to do to the nation of Jerusalem. Or Ezekiel, I love this. Like this is one of the funniest things I, in Scripture. I'm like. You just think of a little kid doing this, like. But Ezekiel made a clay brick, and he writes Jerusalem on the side of it, and then, and then he um, made little miniature siege towers and battering rams, and puts around the brick, and and then lays down with his back to that, to as as a thing to to depict right what God was going to do to Jerusalem. I mean, could you imagine walking by and seeing being like? Dude, you know, like that's something a kid would do. But hes it's like he was just being emphatic. This is what God's going to do. He wants you to remember it, right? Jesus chooses to use here a fig tree. And seeing it wither, withered and knowing what he does, and then and the temple turning over the ta- tables, and is it, is it Jesus, what I see here is, He's, he's trying to say something about what's about to happen to the temple system. Look, look at when he goes in the temple, verses 15 through 18 in Mark 11. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. He's quoting Jeremiah 7. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute too. You've got to put all this together, okay? Jeremiah 7. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Everybody here that, you know, everybody in that temple when he does this knows he's quoting Jeremiah 7. They know this, okay? And the book of Jeremiah is all about God's coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, okay? Now, it's, it's I heard it put this way, okay? It's one thing to pee in the pool. We've all kind of done that at one time or another, right? It's, it's a totally different thing to do it from the diving board, Okay? Totally different reaction you're going to get, okay? So reading from Jeremiah standing in the temple after turning over the tables got him the diving board reaction, okay? So let's find out why, okay? So let's look at Jeremiah 7 real quick. Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11 says, Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered that you may do all these abominations has this house which has been called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight behold I even I have seen it declares the Lord and this is beautiful because when you follow the lead of scripture and you get a whole picture instead of those one little verses, you, you, you get a totally different view, okay? And I've read this about the temple since, you know, I was an infant Christian and never knew this. Most people use this verse to say he's mad at them for selling stuff in the church, so we don't need to be selling them CDs, don't let that band sell our CDs out there, right? That's just wrong. God's house ain't going to be a den of robbers, Right? But, but when you read this in Jeremiah, you get a different picture and you understand it when you take the whole thing together, right? It's, it's Jeremiah here saying to God's people, you're failing to produce fruit God intended to, you to produce. And yet, because you have this temple, because we have this place we can go to and do our little system, and it's your temple... You think you're okay and you feel safe, right? Little parallels to today, right? I'm a member of that church. Where do you go to church? I go to this church. Oh, who's the pastor now? Oh, I can't remember. I'm not sure. I think they got a new one. Really? Sounds like you go there, right? I mean, I mean, it's it's like there. You think you're okay because you're a member. You think you're okay because you got baptized. You think you're okay because you walked the aisle, you prayed the prayer. You think you're okay because, 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 right? All that the little tune went through your head just then, didn't it? Right? But but it's 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 not that way. You'll know them by their fruits. It's saying there's a change in your life that happens, and that's how you know, Right? Is you're treating the temple like it's saving you from destruction, but the temple is to help produce fruit, not protect you from having to produce fruit. As though you can come in here and pray in your prayer and get your fire insurance and stay a thief or stay a murderer, or stay whatever you are and now and still be okay with God. And Jesus is reminding them of this and saying, what Jeremiah said about destroying the temple and the implications are huge it's not that you here's the thing the the evidence of a changed life it's, it's, it's okay we all start somewhere as far as you know when the Bible talks about adulterer, liar drunkard, thief whatever it is, right? And then then it goes on to say that they shall not inherit the kingdom of God, but so were some of you, but you've been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's the deal. It's not that you didn't ever mess up or do anything, which one of the most powerful testimonies. We think the most powerful testimonies are those ones where it was like, man, I was a drug dealer, and I did this, and I killed people, and God saved me, and here I am now. You know know what I think is more powerful? That God saved you from your your own goodness. Right? Because we just think we're okay. I'm I'm not a bad person. I was a pretty good person. I grew up and got straight A's and did this and did this. I was a good person. Never killed anybody. Never robbed no stores. Never did anything. Maybe told one or two lies in my life. But pretty good person. The fact that God can save you from your goodness, your own righteousness, to me, is more powerful than saving somebody who, who clearly, well, you go, well, clearly they're not in the right place. Is it possible that Jesus cursing the fig tree, quoting Jeremiah in the temple, turning over the tables, is him declaring this system, the end of the temple, as they knew it, was coming? Look just verses later in Jeremiah where Jesus is is quoting from. Jeremiah 8, okay? We were in 7. He gets a little further in Jeremiah 8. He says this, I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree. Okay, let's not, let's, God's trying to make it really clear what's tied together, right? And the leaf will wither. And what I have given them will pass away. This old system's going to pass away. This, the way it was done before, the temple, the old covenant, it, it's, it's, it's now going to be a new covenant. I'm fulfilling it, making it new. I'm changing things. Okay? And they went away from him shouting his praises. I mean, here they are. And he's coming in. Yay, yay, yay. And it wouldn't be too much longer that they're wanting him dead. Why? Because he's running out the robbers and the thieves, I don't think that's what it was. That people would have applauded that if they thought they were robbers and thieves, right? They'd been like awesome, but they knew what he was doing was denouncing the temple system, saying this is going away and it's going to change. This is going to be leveled, and there's going to be a new level playing field for everybody. And the temple to them were the, was the place where God was most likely to dwell, where his presence was on the earth, where your prayers are most likely to be heard. It was the only place you could go and get forgiveness of sin. And here is Jesus saying, it's over. The day is at hand when that won't work anymore, and they're shocked. And the disciples were, sh- were shocked. So Jesus says to the disciples with their mouths hanging open, in Mark 11, 20 and 25, as we've seen all this play out, he says this to them because they're like, really? Okay." And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Now, we've all got that last verse of that memorized, right? And we all live by that, correct? That's your favorite verse in all the Scripture, right? You've got to forgive other people so that God will forgive you. No, that's just awkward tension right there is what that creates, Right? What mountain, here's the deal though, what mountain is Jesus talking about? He's talking about throwing it into the sea. I would say he's talking about the mountain right in front of him when he says this mountain, right? He says this mountain, the Temple Mount, okay? Mount Zion itself, the the mountain of Jerusalem. And in the midst of this dismay about the life they knew, Jesus was opening up a whole new way of life, better life where you could pray anywhere, anytime, not just at the temple. Where you could get forgiveness anywhere, anytime, not just at the physical temple, right? Where the temple was no longer bricks and mortar, now it's going to change and it's going to be flesh and blood by the power of the Holy Spirit. Palm Sunday is a great picture of God telling us That our lives can become new, better, where we are no longer doing it by ourselves, but with God in us. That we could truly cry out, Hosanna in the highest. Save us. And there He would be as the cornerstone of your life. Becoming the cornerstone of a new temple. Every believer, every redeemer, every redeemed person on earth is a temple of the living God. He makes you new and dwells in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's amazing how Scripture all goes together in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Palm Sunday is Jesus proclaiming the time has come for things to change. That what he has been doing all along is to continue to break down the barriers between him and mankind, between him and every person, will ever live in himself if they'll just embrace it because God loves you more than anything else and wants to know wants you to know him in a way religion and ceremonial acts won't get you. He wants to commune with you and spend time with you, asking for things, talking, living in his name, for his glory, producing spiritual fruits, that will last forever, these these eternal investments. We are the new temple of the Lord. In the garden, at the start of creation, God walked with man, had conversations with man. God rested on the earth and his peace was here. And then sin separated us from him. And the Bible is a story of God reuniting himself with man tearing down all that stands between man and, and, and God so that we can have direct contact with him again, reuniting heaven and earth. And to accomplish this, he initially separates a chosen people, the nation of Israel. He separates out and, and more and makes the temple, and he separates out more down to a space called the Holy of Holies in the temple. He's got his people and then the temple system, and the priests, and then Holy of Holies in this special place where once again the glory of God came to dwell there in that small place. They thought, that's the place, man, you got to tie a rope to your leg if you go in there because you might die because his presence is so strong in there. Re- reintroducing heaven to earth. He rested there in his temple. But then Jesus comes and tears the curtain. And in in, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and opens up the temple and that Holy of Holies to every person, even us today. Lots of temples walking around on the planet today, right? Fruit-producing temples from all nations, Christians. Listen, though. The warning comes... In that fruit-producing understanding, I, I hope I hope you've got that. That's one of the reasons we started this church was because of this lack of understanding of I, I go to church, so I'm okay. I'm a good person, so I'm okay. I prayed the prayer, I walked the aisle, so I'm okay. And G, and it's clear throughout Scripture that doesn't work. You can't just come to church on Sunday, empty out your sin bucket. Oh, I feel so bad. I went to church, so I felt bad. It was a good good service and I emptied out my sin bucket God forgive me because he's faithful and just to forgive if you ask him he'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness so he has to do it I've got him right doesn't work that way but we think it does I can come up empty my sin bucket out on Sunday and then I just go back to living how I live the rest of the week and it'll be okay because at any moment I can just say God forgive me and he has to and I'm okay I'm going to heaven and that's baloney it don't work that way Okay? It's worse than baloney. It's like that liver loaf stuff. Okay? With the little fat ring around it. Right? It's. Sorry, I had to throw one out for my Granger County folks. Okay? It's, it's bad. It just doesn't work that way. And we so have convinced ourselves it does. You know what's a good service? Is when you get convicted, feel bad, repent of your sin and leave rejoicing because you know you've been forgiven and you know you've been changed and then you go out and you rejoice all week because you watch as you you go, I'm changed, I'm changed, I'm changed. If you go back to that same old sin, you're just feeling bad again. And it's not working. Okay? You're living by the sin bucket method. Okay? Not to say you just change instantly and everything about you. Is, I mean, it's it's a progressive thing. I can't. I wish it were different, right? But living a lifetime of God going, oh look at that, buddy. And I'm like, ah oh, dang. You get that right, and you're like, okay, I'm doing better with that. And then He goes, oh look at that. And you're like, man, where'd that come from? Okay, it's it's a it's a walk of experiencing God t- just molding you as you go through life. So there's always going to be something because we're not perfect. Okay. But when we clearly know, man, that's, well, I shouldn't be doing that, then, then we, and it may take some time and some, you know, two steps forward, one step back, two, you know, another step forward. That stuff may happen, but there is a progression that happens. There should be a, a, you look back over a year, two years, three years, there should be some kind of progression in your life where you're going, I'm becoming more like Christ. My character is getting better. There's this fruit around me where, where where I can see the evidence of what's going on. That's how you know. Okay, it's not because you prayed a prayer or grandma drug you down front and beat it out of you one Sunday. It's because you are changing. Is how you know the Bible teaches. That's how you know you've got it. Okay, I can baptize you a hundred times. Okay, that's just playing in water until you get it, really get it, and you the change starts to take place. What does Jesus say we would do if we're following him? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. If you're not doing that, because I've I've said that for 15 years at least, 16 as a youth pastor, almost 20 years, okay? I've been saying that for like almost 20 years. If you're not fishing for men, if you don't have on your mind, how do I get people to Jesus, there's something wrong in your Christianity, Okay. Go and make disciples of all nations. If we're not going and making disciples, something's wrong, okay? If that's not on my mind, okay? So the bottom line for today is, what will you do with what God has offered you? Will you see God today for who He really is, loving, just, wanting to bless you and be with you, being your cornerstone, holding you together in this life and for eternity, as you are his temple? Or will, will it be the, the same as the people on Palm Saint Sunday who greeted Jesus on Sunday, shouted Hosanna, and then turned around on Friday and called for his death? Which only reminds us of our own weakness and sinfulness that causes us to reject Christ. God, God's constantly pushing back the barriers and, and pulling back the curtains and trying to get you to see him for the wonderful God that he is. And the only thing keeping you from God is you. You can blame all kinds of other things. But that is the truth. The only thing keeping you from God is you. Will you choose him today and live as he created you to live? Living the life he made you for. He wants intimacy with you. Intimacy is... is With our Creator is directly proportional to our success and perseverance and joy in life. I didn't say that, Matt Chandler said that, but it's really good. Intimacy with our Creator is directly proportional to our success and perseverance and joy in life. The more intimacy you have, and success is not like prosperity, success, like I'll have healthy, wealthy. God's view of success and ours can sometimes be different, right? God's view of success is, are you being an ambassador for Christ on this earth, fishing for men, making disciples, right? Living the life he made you for. We live our lives trying to put up barriers between us and God and make excuses for why we won't, can't, really surrender ourselves to God. We'll even use religion. But God continues to try to tear down those barriers, even religion, so that we can know Him. Given how much God has done with you, done for you, how could you not run to Him? Like People run away from God, and I'm like, why? He's not the problem, He's the solution. So what are you waiting for? I love this reference. In what life are you going to live all out for God? So let's pray. I'm going to give you an invitation to start that life with Christ of having the Holy Spirit in you, you becoming the temple of the living God, that he would come inside of you and change you. If that's never happened for you, if you look and go, I have never changed. I've never taken that step, given my life to Christ, seen myself for who I am, really, even my good, righteous stuff as being filthy rags before Him, knowing I need Him. So right now you just turn. That's that repent thing. I just turn from myself and my sin and I turn to Jesus. And I'm no longer in charge of my life. He's Lord of my life. I can't save myself. I'm asking Him to save me. And He did what was needed for that when He died on the cross in your place for your sin and then rose from the dead to give you new life that His Holy Spirit could come inside of you and change you. So just turn and Embrace Jesus this morning if you've never done that. Have your own conversation with him where you just say, God, help me. Save me. Hosanna in the highest. Save me. Right now I give myself to you best I know how. And, and would you just change me? I live by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to follow you, be fisher of men, be, be this person that just makes disciples, but you're going to have to help me because I know I can't do that myself. So I'm surrendering to you. I want to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. You just have that conversation with him. You know, if that's you this morning, you're giving your life to Christ for the first time, would you come see me after the service or fill out one of those decision cards in, in the back of the chairs or email me, get my card out there, call me, whatever it is. Because we want to immerse you in the family because that's, you've now become a part of the temple God is building as the body of Christ. And so we just want to help you and encourage you. For the rest of us, if you call yourself a Christian, are you are you an honoring temple, producing fruit? Or is there some sin you're struggling with that just seems to be knocking you back? Just lean into the power of the Holy Spirit this morning and just ask Him to help you through that. He wants that for you. Sometimes it just takes us just knowing the truth, truth will set you free. you just know that truth no that's wrong. I'm just not going to do that. and by his power he'll he'll help you. Maybe there's more you need to do in being a part of the body of Christ and making disciples that kind of thing and there again you can contact me and we can talk about ways to do that. I want to help you. So Father thank you for your son, Jesus. That's all we can do is say thank you because it's all you. God, thank you that we can be a part of this plan, that we can be a part of what you're doing on the earth right now. Father, as Christmas rolls around, as we walk these Sundays up to Christmas, may we just be reminded what it's really all about. May it change our lives to know you came for this purpose. May we see this scripture, your word, in its com- complete context and understand what you're trying to say to us. Father, would you bless each and every person here this morning. Help them take their next step with you. And I thank you in Jesus' name.